Father, we know that the Apostle Paul was faithful no matter what he went through, that you protected him for he had a mission in life. And you declared to him what that mission would be. You actually spoke to him and gave him clarity on it so that he might be encouraged. And I pray that as we read his story, if we are suffering hardship or sorrow and pain just beyond measure, that you would help us keep perspective, that you know who are yours and what they're suffering through and what you allow. And we know that you have good purposes for us in mind. So help us to remember this, Lord, as we go through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So the Apostle Paul didn't just experience hardship and suffering. It appears that he was actually stoned to death and God revived him in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 25. It says he was, he was stoned once. It doesn't say death, but I don't think you can be stoned and not die. I'm not referring to marijuana. This is something that you take rocks and you aim for the head and it would be big rocks not necessarily the round cobble like we have here but rocks with jagged edges and they piled the stones on him and they left him for dead and i believe god revived him resuscitated him he threw off the rocks and the disciples who were there with him just whoa probably a little bloodied and had some bruises and things like that but he got up and he walked away in acts chapter 27 paul is on his way to rome to be judged by caesar and remember a mob in jerusalem wanted to end his life and 40 men became assassins in an attempt to snuff them out remember that i gave you that information have any of you ever had a contract on your life where somebody wants to come after you have you been associated with people that you don't like in politics and somebody said, yo, your number's up, something like that? Hopefully not. That is, hasn't happened to you. But Paul was a target. And he was a target by the people of his day. So he was on the ship headed to Rome. And we are given a detailed description of the voyage, which ended in disaster for the ship and its cargo, but the lives of everyone aboard were spared. It's, it's very detailed what happens to him here? Now, it was common when Paul's on the ship to have Roman soldiers accompany prisoners on a voyage that was primarily for cargo transport. It's not like today that if you want to go somewhere, you get on a pleasure cruise and you go to that particular area. Normally, you get on a cargo ship that's out there for business and they take prisoners and put them on the ship. And usually the centurion would be in charge with what happens on the ship and he would give directions to the captain and the crew of that ship. And that was the case with Paul. His commander was named Julius. And it's clear from verse 2 that Paul was accompanied by the author of this letter, which is Luke because he uses the first person plural pronoun we he says we boarded this ship so luke the author of this is on the ship with him uh, as well as aristarchus now we're going to pick it up in verse one it says when it was decided that we should sail for italy paul and some other prisoners were handed over to a centurion named julius who belonged to the imperial regiment we boarded a ship from Aramidium, about to sail four ports along the coast of the province of Asia, and we put out to sea. Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica, was with us. The next day, we landed at Sidon, and Julius, in kindness to Paul, allowed him to go to his friends so that they might provide for his needs. Now, Sidon 
is on the Mediterranean Sea, just above Israel, and it's about 70 miles north of Caesarea. So he's just going up the coast. It's equivalent from being here in San Diego and going up to about L.A. or Ventura County. So they're just off the coast, and they're going up. Uh, north. Now, Paul was given a little freedom because he did not yet have a conviction against him. He didn't have a, a death sentence, so to speak. He would not have been chained. And so Julius gave him the freedom to go with his companions, Luke and Aristarchus, to go meet some of the believers, hopefully, that were there, and they could be sustained on their trip. And, and that was Paul's habit, that he would go to these cities, and the cities that had the Christians would help provide for him and any companions that he had with him. And verse 4 says, From there we put out to sea again and passed to the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. Now, it, to understand how islands work, I've been to several islands, and the lee side is where the wind comes in and it heads towards the land of the island. And then it hits mountains, it goes up, and then it goes to the leeward side. So if you go to the lee of an island, the wind hits the island, goes up over the island, and then the leeward side, it's calm. It's usually more deserty. If you were to go over to Hawaii, like the island of Maui, on the lee side of the island, it is lush, it is green, there's bamboo forest, you guys know what that is. And, and you head over to the west side, like Lahaina and Kihei over there, and it's a little more dry. But you can, the big island is like that too. You can look, I used to live in Kona, Kona is dry, but you would look up on the mountain and it'd be raining in the afternoon because the lee side of the island would take the winds, the trade winds that are there, deposit all the rain on the other side, it would just make it over the crest and then there'd be no rain on the opposite side or the leeward side of the island. Now it says in verse 5, when we sailed across the open sea off the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we landed at uh, Myra in Lycia. There was a centurion found there. The centurion found an Alexandrian ship for Italy and put us back on board. Uh, could you put up the map, Daryl? Now, I, I want you to look closely at the map that he's... Not that one. Go, go to the one that has Macedonia and Thrace and Galatia and Cappadocia. Nope, the other one. Back. Go back. That one. Now, I don't, I think that's the one. Let me see. Yeah, the red, that's, that's one of them. If you look at the red that's up there, and this is the way that they went, it, it goes from uh, Jerusalem up to Sidon, from Sidon all the way up to the area of Myra and Pamphylia, and then it comes down on the lee side of Crete. Now, does it show it on that map? I have a different map. It doesn't. Can you get the other map as well? That one right there. Now you see the island of Crete that's up there? They come down from up in Laodicea or by Laodicea. They come down. That's the leeward side. So the wind is going towards Crete from the north. And they hit Salome right there. And then they go around Crete. And they head to New Havens, which we will get to. And they find this Alexandrian ship. Now, the ship is going to be a grain hauler. You want to show the ship, please? Picture of the ship. This is what the ship would have looked like. It would have been 
140 feet long. Now, this room is 40 feet, as I've told you before. So it's about a little over three times the length of this room. And it's just as wide, approximately, as this room, 36 feet. That's how wide this room is. Now, on that ship, they would have had grain and stores that would have come from Alexandria. Alexandria is on the north coast of Africa. They would have been hauling grain that was grown in Egypt, taking it up to Rome. That's where they were going. And so Paul gets on the ship, this Alexandrian ship, and there are 276 people on this ship. There are a lot of people on this ship. Now, the ship itself, it has a square sail, and it doesn't have a normal rudder. It has two oars that are off the back, and that's how they steer it. And it cannot go against the wind. It has to take the wind and go with the wind. It's not like modern sailing vessels that you can tack back and forth. If you've ever been down to Mission Bay and rented a 21-foot victory sailboat, uh, you can do that. You can tack against the wind, and you can still make headway. These, the wind, you have to get the wind behind you, pushing you forward. And that's why they could go from the area a little bit above is Laodicea. They can go from that area all the way down to Crete because the wind is behind them and it's driving them. So that's the ship that Paul would have been on. You know, if you go back to the same map, uh, if you would, Daryl, the previous one. Yeah, that's the one. It says in verse 7, We made slow headway for many days and had difficulty arriving off a Snedus. When the wind did not allow us to hold our course, we sailed to the lee of Crete, opposite Salmone. We moved along the coast with difficulty and came to a place called Fair Havens near the town Lassia or Lassie. Now, Lassie, I, I don't know if it's on that particular map, but it's really close to Fair Havens. Now, Fair Havens, it kind of pointed east. And the wind came from the south and the east. It came in there, and it would not be an appropriate place for Paul and the Alexandrian ship to winter. Also, Fair Havens was a small city, and the guys who were manning the ship, the crew on the ship, would not have wanted to spend months in a small city. And so they come up with this bright idea. Well, let's go around to Phoenix. Now, Phoenix is just like 70 or 40 miles more on the island of Crete, and it had a better harbor in it where they could have stayed there for the winter because of the geography of the harbor it would protect them more from the storm the storms that would come up now in verse 9 it says much time has been lost and sailing had already become dangerous because by now it was after the fast now what fast is being referred to here the fast that's being referred to is the day of atonement the Day of Atonement in 59 A.D., which is believed to be the year that Paul was on the island of Crete, it would have been October 5th of that year. Now, October 5th, here in San Diego, we have usually nice weather. Sometimes we get the Santa Anas blowing through. And then sometimes I can remember on Halloween it raining hard. When I was in high school, I can remember some hard downpours in October. <clears throat> well, it, it's during that period of time from September 14th to November 11th, it's really bad to be in the ocean on the Mediterranean because these storms would come from the north. They would call them northeasters or nor'easter, and the wind would just howl. And it would go down towards this island, and there's some uh, 
geographical features of the island of Crete that just funnel the wind. Like if you've ever been to New York City or a city that has large high rises, when you go between the tall buildings, what happens is the wind comes down and it just funnels and you'll walk down the street and your hair and everything else is blowing because the wind is funneled through those buildings and those buildings act as an accelerant to the wind. Okay, so you got that. Now, going on. So Paul warned them, men, I can see that our voyage is going to be disastrous and bring great loss to the ship and cargo and to our own lives as well. But the centurion, instead of listening to what Paul said, followed the advice of the pilot and the owner of the ship. Now, again, Paul was pretty experienced on the sea. He had traveled at least 3,500 miles during his missionary adventures, so he was well acquainted with when a good time was to sail and when a bad time was to sail. But the pilot of the ship had an economic mind, and he said, you know, i got to get this stuff to port. It's got to be protected. And again, the crew would have said, I don't want to stay in Fair Havens. It's a small city. And so they say, well, let's, let's make a run for it. You know, let's go around and get to Phoenix, and we can winter there. The problem was, you want to show the picture of the island? On the island here, now you see that northeast or nor'easter, the the wind, the big gray line that's coming down there. That gray line goes through this valley. And this valley with mountains on either side, it takes the wind, just like buildings, and accelerates the wind. So when they thought they left Fair Havens and they're heading towards Phoenix, the wind would not let them stay close to the land. It pushed them away from the land. Now, I love being in the wind. Not too much wind. I've seen uh, little videos of the Netherlands where they try to cross the street and they can hardly do it. The winds are so powerful. And if there's ice in the road, you might as well forget it, trying to get across the street. But this wind comes down and it's blowing and we'll find out it was blowing so hard and for so long it was 14 days. They are on the water and this wind is blowing and they never saw the sun for at least 14 days. That's what Paul's going through. I would call this a hardship. No pun intended. But it, it, it's, it's difficult for them to get out there and try to sail to Phoenix when this wind is just howling, coming down through the island of Crete. Now, going on, verse 13, when a gentle south wind began to blow, and this was the beginning of the hurricane force winds, you know, when a storm comes into the area, you get some trees blowing back and forth, and, oh, this is good, the wind's to our back. And if, if you look at the island and the dotted line, that's where they wanted to go. But the wind said, no, you're going to go south. And it says, they, they thought they had attained what they wanted, so they weighed anchor and sailed along the shore of Crete. Before very long, a wind of hurricane force called a northeaster swept down in the island. The ship was caught by the storm and could not head into the wind. So we gave way to it and were driven along as we passed the lee of a small island called Cauda. We were hardly able to make the lifeboat secure. Now, you'll see the island. There's another map that has the island. There it is. 
That's where the island was. So they couldn't go up to Phoenix and they're going, well, yeah, we're just going to, we're just going to run with the wind. And so that little island was out there and it says they had difficulty bringing in what is called the lifeboat or what we would call a lifeboat. And so they brought it up and they almost lost it. And if you can imagine being on a ship, now it's 140 feet long by 36 feet wide. And that thing's being tossed back and forth like this, up and down. It didn't have any type of gyros on it to keep it stable. If you've been on um, a a boat when it gets really uh, precarious out there in the water, just a personal note, Buzz and I, we were going to go out scuba diving. We hit the Mission Bay Channel, and we saw the waves coming in. I, I don't know if we had checked the forecast or not, but the waves at the beginning of the channel were higher than the boat. And so we're, we're heading out and we're going, yeah, I don't think this is going to be a good day. So we turned around and came back in. And those waves were only like six feet maybe coming in. And so we know what, what it looks like in a little boat being out there just being tossed to and fro. But on the open ocean, you know, those, those swells can be 30 or 40 feet just going up and down and trying to secure the lifeboat would have been almost an impossible task. So going on in verse 17, when the men had hoisted it aboard, they passed ropes under the ship itself to hold it together. So what they would do is men would get on either side of the boat, imagine a room this size, and they would have ropes. A, a guy would be at the front, the bow of the boat, and they would take those ropes and they'd run them on both sides underneath and they would secure the boat, wrapping them up on the rails of the boat to keep the boat together. Now, how many did they put on a 140-foot boat? Probably every rope that was on the ship. They put it on there just to keep the boat intact. It goes on to say, fearing that they would run aground on the sandbars of Citrus, they lowered the sea anchor and let the ship be driven along. We took such a violent battering from the storm that the next day they began to throw the cargo overboard. On the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor star appeared for many days and the storm continued raging, we finally gave up all hope of being saved. This is hardship. This is going through difficulty. You are in fear for your very life. In a small little boat on the open ocean, the seas are probably 30 or 40 feet out there, and it's just not looking good for them. Verse 21, after the men had gone a long time without food, Paul stood up before them and said, men, you should have taken my advice not to sail from Crete. Now remember, there's over 270 people on the boat and he stands up, you should have listened to me, is what he says, probably in a nice way. He says, then you would have spared yourself and this damage and loss. Now, verse 22 says, but now I urge you, therefore, keep up your courage because not one of you will be lost, only the ship will be destroyed. Last night, an angel of God, whose I am and whom I serve, stood beside me and said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar and God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. So when was God speaking? In the midst of the storm. Now, you've heard that illustration before, right? I mean, this is literal. And he's probably trying to sleep on this boat that's just going everywhere. Now, have you been on a boat before that's real rocky and tried to sleep? It can be difficult. It's, you know, get this motion sickness going on. Imagine 270 some odd people. Do you think they were getting sick? 
seasick on that little boat that's out. And it's a little, even though 140 feet seems long, it's a little boat. And, and they're not eating. Why? They don't feel like eating out there. And, and certainly it would have been difficult to prepare food. So God is speaking to Paul in the midst of this, and it brings calmness to Paul. It's all right. He's being tossed everywhere. Hey, you should have listened to me, but it's okay. We're going to survive. And it's just, you get the picture of what's going on, and it's dark, and it's rainy, and the wind's blowing. He's probably yelling this to the people because they probably can't hear unless he starts yelling. So there, oops, my message is taking its own trip here. I've been having trouble with this lately. Now going on where I was. Okay, there we are. God was speaking. So verse 25. So keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. Nevertheless, we must run aground on some island. So verse 27 gives us the amount of time they've been on the water. On the 14th night... We were still being driven across the Adriatic Sea when about midnight the sailors sensed we were approaching land. They took soundings and found that the water was 120 feet deep. I've been at 120 feet below the surface. And you look up and you go, that's a long way to the top if you have clear visibility. You go, wow, that's, that's way up there. And so they took a sounding to see how deep it actually was. A short time later, they took soundings and found that it was 90 feet deep. Fearing that we would be dashed against the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern, which would be the back of the boat, and prayed for daylight. In an attempt to escape from the ship, the sailors let the lifeboat down to the sea, pretending they were going to lower some anchors from the bow. Then Paul said to the centurion and soldiers, unless these men stay with the ship, you cannot be saved. So the soldiers cut the ropes and held the lifeboat and let it fall away. So Paul was totally trusting in God, telling the centurion, you better cut that lifeboat. If these guys who are the crew members, if they leave, you're going to die. And you're all alone having to trust God in your little boat on the Adriatic Sea. What else are you going to do? And and so this is what Paul is being commended for, in my opinion, because he's trusting God to do what he said he would do. He fully believes it. And he's bringing encouragement to the others. Now, verse 33 says, Just before dawn, Paul urged them all to eat. For the last 14 days, he said, You have been in constant suspense and have gone without food. You haven't eaten anything. Now, some people would say, Well, this could have been a spiritual fast that they were praying to their own gods and they weren't eating. They were sacrificing what they could have eaten simply for the God maybe to look um, favorably upon them, whatever God they served, and they would have smooth sailing. I I just kind of reject that just because of the, the storm itself. And we're familiar with this. And how are we familiar? Let me read something to you and see if you recognize this. The legend lives on from the Chippewa on down to the big lake they call Gichigumi. Do you know what that is? The lake, it is said, never gives up her dead when the skies of November turn gloomy. That is Gordon Lightfoot and the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. And in that song, he says, there's another line that says, Fella, our fellas, it's too rough to feed you. So being on a ship 
that's in the midst of hurricane force winds, it's too rough to eat. And, you know, feeling sick on top of that, as I just previously mentioned, it would have been too difficult. So for 14 days there without food, how would you feel after 14 days having no food? Extremely weak. I mean, we go for a day and we think we're going to die, you know, and, and they had 14 days of not eating anything, just holding on for dear life. And you get so weak, you know, if you try to sit down in the ship that's being rocked two and four, you, you, it's, it's almost like you have to rope yourself in and just hang on. And I'm sure that's what many of the people were doing. So verse 34 says, now I urge you to take some food. You need it to survive. Not one of you will lose a single hair from your head. After he said this, he took some bread and gave thanks to God in front of them all, all 270 plus people. Then he broke it and began to eat. They were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. Altogether, there were 276 of us on board. When they had eaten as much as they wanted, they lightened the ship by throwing the grain into the sea. Now, I'm going to give you some nautical terms here. And I think you've probably heard these terms, but you probably have never heard them applied properly. Like, for instance, flotsam. Do you know what flotsam is? You've heard the word, I'm sure, if you ever watched The Little Mermaid, flotsam and jetsam. You know, there were the two eels that were there. Well, flotsam is floating wreckage of a ship and its cargo. It's just on top of the water. Jetsam is a part of the ship, its equipment or its cargo that is purposely cast overboard or jettisoned to lighten the load in time of distress and that sinks or is washed ashore. So you have flotsam and jetsam that is part of the ship that's floating on the surface or makes it to shore or it sinks. Then there's legan, also known as ligan. It is the cargo that is lying at the bottom of the ocean, and sometimes it's marked with a buoy. What they would do is they would drop something in the water, stick a buoy to it so that they can go back and retrieve it. And then there's also derelict. Don't be so derelict, you know, it's kind of how we use it. A derelict is cargo that is also at the bottom of the ocean, but which no one has any hope of reclaiming. So those are nautical terms, and you can apply it to Paul being out there. There's going to be flotsam and jetsam everywhere. He's telling them the ship is going to be lost. There's going to be ligon, and it's, there's going to be derelict. There's going to be cargo at the bottom, and nobody's going to be able to retrieve anything. There's going to be no buoy set on this thing. And so that's what he's describing. Verse 39, when daylight came, they did not recognize the land, but they saw a bay with a sandy beach where they decided to run the ship aground if they could. Cutting loose the anchor, they left them in the sea and at the same time untied the ropes that held the rudders. Then they hoisted the foresail to the wind and made for the beach, but the ship stuck on a sandbar and ran aground. The bow stuck fast, or the bow stuck fast, and would not move, and the stern was broken to pieces by the pounding of the surf. So imagine this. Did you guys ever remember the show Victory at Sea? And Victory at Sea, it was always black and white, and you'd see these battleships going up and down, and the waves are just crashing everywhere. That's the image that you can give for this island. Now, they were in swimming distance of the shore but they hit a sandbar which is way out there and when you have a sandbar what happens is when the tide comes in it hikes up the waves 
And so they're on this sandbar. The underneath topography causes that wave to come up and it's crashing over the back of the boat and the back of the boat is destroyed. You're at the front of the boat going, oh no, this is not good. And you see behind you, that is where the shoreline is. And you know you're going to have to use some of that flotsam and jetsam, grab hold of it and make it to the shore. Now, have you ever been in surf? Yeah, if maybe some of you guys in here surf. I used to surf. And I can remember going out in Imperial Beach. And it was at dusk. Several times this would happen. It would be at dusk and there'd be a swell coming in. And when the swell come in, it would start to get dark. And it would be hard to tell depth where you were. And all the beaches are like this. Uh, a few of the beaches, like in La Jolla, would be like this. And you're going out to the set. Now, the, the waves come in in sets. And when these waves come in, they hike up, depending on the topography of the underneath the, the ground, the seafloor. They'll hike up and they'll crash. And sometimes you look at those waves, and they're only like 10 feet. But that's measured by the back of the wave. The front of the wave can be 15 to 20 feet tall. Now imagine, for your perspective, imagine this wall is a wave and you're flat on the concrete and it's going to break right on you. That has happened so many times. It actually breaks surfboards in two. The, the surfers will do a thing they call a duck dive where they'll take the board and they'll push it under the water and they give a kick and it gets them about three to five feet under the water to where when that wave comes over and that's just thousands of pounds of pressure that slam. If you've ever been to the beach when there's big waves, you can hear those waves slam. Imagine being right underneath. You know, the other surfers when they're out there, and I've been caught in those plenty of times when, when you're out there, you see somebody get caught. Every surfer out there goes, oh, oh, because they know what's going on. And you're tumbling underneath and it, it's just a terrible, tumultuous time. And you're trying to hold on to your surfboard. You have this leash that is under there. You're trying to hold on to it because the wave wants to rip the surfboard out of your hand. And if it does, then your leash snaps. And then you're out there for the next wave that comes in the set. And all you can do is dive for the bottom. Now, this this area where they were located, it has sandbars. And I can remember being in surf like this, losing my board, and, and being under the water. You take a deep breath, and you just got to wait. You got to wait to finish the tumbling. And I did that. And then I go, okay, I'm going to go to the surface. So I start swimming towards the surface. I hit my head on the floor of the bottom of the ocean. And I go, wrong direction. You know, so I turned around and I came to the top. These people would have been in that same kind of condition where these waves are crashing over them. They're holding on to a plank of some type. They're trying to make it to shore. They're kicking, doing everything they possibly can to survive. And Paul is one of them. Paul's going, oh, great, here comes another one. And he holds on to something, I'm sure. And, and they all make it into shore. So I'm trying to give you a description of what it's like to be out there in the water. And the wind is howling hurricane force. I haven't been out in hurricane force in the water. It's like 
no way. That's just stupidity to be out there. But they were caught in this storm. So verse 42, the soldiers planned to kill the prisoners to prevent any of them from swimming away and escaping. But the centurion wanted to spare Paul's life and kept them from carrying out their plans. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and get to land. The rest were there on planks or on pieces of the ship in a way, in this way, everyone reached the land safely. And so this is Paul's adventure at being shipwrecked. And this is the third time the third time, according to Second Corinthians chapter 11, he, he had been shipwrecked three times being out there in the water. You would think he would learn not to go in the water during the winter, you know. But he did, and he, he said on one of the times, he was a day and a night in the ocean. And uh, Another personal story here. I've been surfing out at uh, cliffs. If you know where the cliffs is, it's Point Loma. And the waves can be monstrous out there. And when I would sit out there on my board, and I know it's underneath now, but before you don't, as a surfer, you kind of look down. I wonder what's down there. I I wonder what's on the bottom. I wonder what's swimming around me. And surfers, on a regular basis, they'll see sharks or they'll see uh, seals come up. You know, there'll be things out there, and it kind of startles you a little bit. But you get out there, and you just start wondering, Am I going to be okay for a day and a night being out there? There's this island in Hawaii called Molokini. And you can take a boat, you can go out there and you snorkel on the inside if it's an old crater. On the inside and they take several boats out there. Well, you can also do the wall on the backside. And when you go down the wall, it's 300 feet to the bottom. And you can go down to about 130 feet and you can see the bottom. It's very clear. And then the captain of the ship will say, okay, when it's time to pick you up, you have to push out into the blue. In other words, you go away from the island where you see nothing but turquoise water. And when you're out there, you have to sit there until the boat comes. And you see these things floating by that you can't imagine are even creatures. And you're just going, what in the world is that? And there's things in that water we have no idea what they are still we're still discovering things out there and being in the ocean for a day and a night now have you ever been in the ocean at night in the water it's well i've done that too you know and sharks are out there and i've seen the sharks and you, you have to turn off your light sometimes or get your light you don't want to turn it off but you you have to float at 15 feet in the middle of the night and you you can't see your hand in front of your face and no one else is around you out there and that's paul he's shipwrecked at night in the ocean it's like what in the world is out here now talk about having a little trepidation or slight bit of fear that you could have out there i i can relate to paul a little bit Uh, going through what he went through but it's this idea God still preserved him you know here's the story they were in the water for 590 miles over 14 days and they end up on the island of Malta that's how long it took and they were just driven by the wind 
and hurricane force winds and taking no food. Paul was part of 276 passengers. They all feared for their lives. No doubt the tempest that they were in was demonically enforced. And Satan does have the power of weather as God permits. All you have to do is look at the book of Job, chapter 1. It states there in verse 19 that a wind came when Satan was given a charge over Job and God allowed him to test Job. He had a wind come and it blew down the house that contained all of Job's daughters and sons and it killed them all. And so for 14 days, I could just see it. Satan's there. Paul's going to die. I'm going to make sure he's going to die. How many storms come through San Diego that last for 14 days? You just don't have that. Even hurricanes that come through on the East Coast, they don't last for 14 days. They're there for a few days and they go through. This is 14 days. I'm sure Satan is just going by this time... Paul, would you just die already? He, he wanted him dead and enforcing the storm, and God was allowing it to happen. And, of course, we get the why here of what is taking place with this. And there's my computer again. <clears throat> Give me a second. It's Satan doing this. I just know it is. Do I even have the same? There we are. Okay. So Satan is saying, you know, why won't you just die already to Paul? But Paul gets the answer of why he's going through all of this. If he was worried before, it says, do not be afraid. Verse 24, Paul, you must stand trial before Caesar and God has graciously, graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. So he told him why he's on this boat and he has to be saved from this, even though Satan would have appear to be uh, opposing him so everywhere that paul and the ship stop would be able they would be able to be uh, sharing the good news of jesus christ and that's what they did whether it was in crete he encouraged the disciples if any of the disciples would have been there he gets to malta as we get to the final chapter of the book of acts and things happen in malta where they get the gospel so everywhere the ship is driven god determines it should go there so that the people get the message of salvation he would be a tremendous witness, him and Luke and Aristarchus, a, a tremendous witness not only to Julius, the commander of the ship, but also to the crew and to the passengers. You know, Paul is p- kind of dictating what's going to happen. He's telling him what's going to take place in the future. And they would have come to him and say, how did you know these things? At least I would have done that. God wanted the message of the gospel to be delivered to all of these people. And eventually Paul would end up in Rome and in Caesar's court. Not only would the court hear his case but we know that caesar's household had servants in it as well that receive the gospel and from the experience you've had in church uh, you know and and the world around you if you go through pressure pressure is nothing compared to hardship and we ought to look at it like that the inconveniences that we have if you go from here and you get a flat tire (laughs) pressure Okay, God, God wanted, it was in God's plan here for me to stop. Maybe there's somebody I'm supposed to talk to, some type of interruption. Oh, yeah, you have to go to the hospital because you have, or emergency room because you have some indigestion. Well, maybe there's somebody there that you need to pray for. And he's using you to move you around, and that's just pressure. You're not in fear of your life for these things. And because Paul went this circuitous route, 
He ended up in Rome. What came out of Rome? The Catholic Church, referring to universal church. Not the corruption that came later, but from that church, the gospel went out through the entire world. Then you had in the 16th century Martin Luther, the protesters of the Protestant church began. And from the Protestant church, you were sitting here. That's how it worked. That's how important it was for Paul to get to Rome. That's how important it was for Paul to go to Crete and to Malta and be on the ship and go from there to the other islands and other ports as he headed up to Rome. So the next time you're experiencing some type of difficulty, all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose and you're not experiencing hardship. When hardship comes, we expire and we're gone. That's the only hardship we're really experiencing here. Could it be worse in the future? Yes, it could. But you can be like Paul and say, don't be afraid. Everything is going to work out fine. So let's pray. Father, we we thank you for Paul and his testimony and everything that he went through and the faithfulness of Luke to write these things down. And, And the tumultuous time he had on the ocean. Father, he endured so many things that we might know who you are. What a blessing he has been to millions and millions of people. Father, may you use us in a way that maybe our life is not in danger, but just give us opportunities to share. He endured a tremendous amount, just as Father, your son Jesus did. And may we be willing to endure a little pressure from time to time that we might be your faithful witnesses. In Jesus' name, and the church said... Please stand as we sing our closing song.